0: This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. This week's show is going to be a little different for two reasons. First and foremost, because I'm solo, no guests, just discussing a book that's near and dear to my heart this week. And second, because I believe... This is the first and ever and only time we have discussed a novel on the Human Action Podcast. I think it's been entirely nonfiction. I could be wrong. But at any rate, the novel is the greatest anti war book perhaps ever written, certainly is, in my view, All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remarque. And The reason I'm solo this week, I'm not going to name and shame anyone, but I was absolutely surprised asking around to some notables in libertarian circles how few people had actually read this. And everyone was like, no, I haven't read that book, Jeff. So I decided I would do the show solo because I think it's, uh, first of all, a very important book for people to read, but also a very enjoyable book for people to read. I think you'll absolutely love it. If you take the time. Now, the copy I have says the greatest war novel of all time on the cover. I think it's the greatest anti-war novel of all time, perhaps. So a couple of years ago at our event in Texas, uh, we were where we were talking about media, I brought this book up in my remarks there. And ever since then, I've been thinking to myself, you know, we ought to do a show on it. Now, this particular book happened to be laying around the house when I was a kid, Uh, I recall reading it at a pretty young age. It was just one of those things where that's what you tend to read when you're little. And in 1979, when I was quite a wee lad, uh, CBS actually came out with a movie adaptation of this book with Ernest Borgnine as one of the actors, which is kind of funny. Um, And they took a few liberties and made a couple little changes in the story to make it a a bit more dramatic. But nonetheless, it's basically the same story. And... um, a couple of years ago, on the same topic of w- World War I or the Great War, I did a movie review of what I consider an exceptional film called They Shall Not Grow Old. So we'll link that in the show notes because I would really encourage everyone to go watch that. And of course, the Great War, World War I, has really been a central theme for both the Mises Institute, but also for more broadly for Austrian economics. Um, When Mises came home from having fought for the Austro-Hungarian army uh, in the interwar years there, of course, he uh, wrote a little bit about his feelings and his experiences in his memoirs, which he started to write a couple decades later. But for the most part, he stayed pretty mum about it. Uh, And of course, in the 1920s, when he writes liberalism, he is talking about a liberal form of society, which is starting to be in the rearview mirror. At that point, now he could not foresee the rise of Nazi Germany yet. Writing that book came out in 27, uh, but nonetheless, when he uses the term liberalism uh, as the title of his book, he is looking backwards. He is looking uh, at the 19th century, even if he doesn't know it. So uh, the kind of liberalism which is rooted in uh, restrained government and more importantly in property rights in property. Uh, that That's the term Mises uses to distill the entire liberal program into just one word, property. Um, that is about to be replaced by a very different, and I would argue, a very diluted and even harmful uh, version of liberalism in the 20th century, which involves positive rights, a whole panoply of positive rights and democracy. So... Uh, World War I has always loomed large in the Austrian economic story. It represents in many ways the end of a particularly incredible intellectual era for Vienna and its worldwide influence. And it also represents, I think, uh, in many ways the beginning of the end of real liberalism. And of course, not too much longer after uh, Mises writes liberalism, we see the rise of Keynes and his general theory – And the idea that uh, an economy is based on consumption rather than production. And in part, I would argue that is because of war finance, because deficits and cheap money are important to governments so that they can finance things like as they did during World War I. So it's, uh, you know, World War I is definitely a seminal point in the history of the West and uh, the end of the Austro Hungarian Empire the end of a very civilizing force, I think, across Europe and the beginning of our modern era politically here in the West with, for example, Woodrow Wilson, um, who gave us, really as Hoppe discusses, the first war that was not fought purely over turf or over land. In other words, at least the U.S. involvement in World War I was ideological in a sense. Now, wars are always about power, they're always about spoils, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this was some noble war, but nonetheless, when Woodrow Wilson coined the term make the world safe for democracy, and when he employed Edward Bernays uh, to basically create propaganda to get a very reluctant uh, American population, some 60% of whom had German ancestry to support this war, Um, That was an ideological push in many ways. So I don't think you can really understand the milieu out of which uh, we read Bomberwerk and Menger and Mises and Hayek without understanding something anyway about World War I. And this book, All Quiet on the Western Front, is an excellent way to do just that. Now, as I mentioned, it's a novel. So this is a fictional account of events during that war, but it's not very fictional. Uh, the author, Eric Maria Remarque, was himself a very young man born right around the turn of the century who served uh, in in World War I and was injured about five times uh, and the, the last of which was quite severe. So he left uh, and actually lived in the U.S. for the remainder of the war and then ultimately settled in Switzerland. And produced this book, which was a huge hit and a huge seller, by the way, at about age 30. So Eric Maria Remarque is giving us uh, his own view of the war. And what's so beautiful about it really is the cast of characters and the manner in which remark presents the war to us, which much like the film I mentioned, They Shall Not Grow Old. It's not about the big battles and the big generals and the strategy. It's not about the politics or the politicians behind us. It's very much just the story of individual men, individual soldiers, Uh, And how they viewed the war through the lens of their own experience, which is a day-to-day thing, you know, worrying about cigarettes, worrying about food, worrying about uh, taking a shower or a bath, that sort of thing. So it's a very much granular uh, view of things from uh, the the level of the lowliest soldiers. And when I say men, we should almost be saying boys, because the cast of characters in this book is a bunch of 19-year-olds. And that's very much in keeping with the reality of World War I. And the protagonist of the book, one Paul Boimer, is in fact only 19 years old uh, when his character begins. And the, the crew around him, his immediate soldiers in his immediate company really form the cast for this book. And they're mostly very, very young men, teenagers, actually. Uh, there are some great German names. If you're into German names and German pronunciations, um, there's Paul Boimer. There's a uh, Bercher and Dettering and Kimmerish and uh, Vector and Vesthues and Hamaker and Himmelstoss and Kuczynski and Mittelstadt and Mueller and Chowden So it's uh, it's very interesting book uh, from a linguistic perspective. And almost all of these uh, people are young men, as I mentioned, except for one uh, farmer, uh, Kuczynski, who's about 40. So to 19-year-old boys, he is a very senior character, a very senior figure, uh, and a mentor to them in the ways, not, not just of war, but also the ways of the world. So uh, that forms a, an interesting part of the book. Uh, what what I enjoy is really the beginning. Um, for example, they tell the story of a senior officer named Cantorek, and uh, he's sort of their drill instructor as they go through what amounts to a very brief and uh, not-too-helpful boot camp. And so they're talking about this older gentleman, Cantorek, and already at the beginning of the book, you begin to sense uh, that the characters will present maybe not an anti-war view, but a realistic view, a jaundiced view. So I'm quoting here from the beginning when they're talking about the d- essentially what we would call, I guess, a drill instructor. Uh, so uh, Boimer is saying the idea of authority, which they represented, meaning the senior officer, was associated in our minds with a greater insight and a more humane wisdom. But the first death we saw shattered this belief. We had to recognize that our generation was more to be trusted than theirs, They surpassed us only in phrases and cleverness. So right away you get this sort of uh, fresh-faced youth versus supposed authority figure perspective. And it doesn't take long for boys that age to go off to war and realize that things are perhaps not as they appear. But what's so beautiful about the first chapter is, um, and poignant about the beginning of this book, is the story of Kimmerish. So Kimrish is uh, one of their comrades, and the book opens with the, uh, the the crew on leave. So they're behind the lines. They are enjoying a few days of R&R, but they're also uh, visiting their friend Kimrish in the hospital. So uh, they go to the hospital, visit him, and they can tell almost immediately that he is a goner. He's not going to make it. Uh, He's very badly injured. One of his legs is hanging on by a thread and causing him huge distress. And so, uh, nonetheless, they try to keep up a united front and be cheerful with him when they go to visit him. And one of the first things he complains about is that his wristwatch has been stolen in the hospital when he was unconscious. So this sort of thing is very common, of course, during wartime. And he's lamenting this. But then uh, Boimer and the other men visiting him begin to look at his boots, which are under the bed in which he is uh, convalescing along with some of his other uh, possessions. And so Mueller, one of the other soldiers said, he, he shows he has a pair of airman's boots. They are fine English boots of soft yellow leather, which reach to the knees and lace all the way up. They are things to be coveted. So they keep sort of talking about the boots and referring to the boots and all the while they're telling... Kimrish, oh, you're going to get to go home early. And and even if they amputate your leg, you'll still be better off because, you know, you'll be home and we'll still be over here. And so they're telling him these nice, pretty lies. Uh, He's clearly not going to go home. He's clearly not going to make it. And, you know, the best case scenario for him would be the loss of a leg. So the boots matter. The boots are nice. Uh, The boots are a real asset in wartime. And, of course, they fret that if they're not at the hospital – when Kimmerish dies, that some hospital orderly or some enterprising uh, person at the you know will take them, and they'll never be seen again. And they, as his comrades, won't get to claim them. And so this is a very uh, deliberate calculation on their part. I mean, they're not they're being practical here; they're being pragmatic. He's not going to make it, and it would be a shame if those boots didn't go to one of them. So, um, again, Boimer here as the narrator says, well. But as it is, the boots are quite inappropriate to Kemmerich's circumstances, whereas Mueller can make good use of them. Again, Kemmerich is about to die. Kemmerich will die. It is immaterial who gets them. Why then should Mueller not succeed to them? He has more right than a hospital orderly. When Kemmerich is dead, it will be too late. Therefore, Mueller is already on the watch. We have lost all sense of other considerations because they are artificial. Only the facts are real and important for us, and good boots are scarce. So what you see is uh, the way that even a young man, uh, Paul Boimer's disposition, has started to change his mindset and his thinking as a result of just a few months of the reality of war. So uh, life starts to become cheap, but material things start to become very, very dear to him. So I thought that was a a very interesting way for a remark to begin the book, talking about these boots and almost as a metaphor for something more important, which is the beginning of the loss, not of their humanity necessarily. Um, These are good men, good boys, as you'll see when you read this book, but of their innocence and to lose that at 19 um, was really a hell of a thing. And that's, that's something that pervades this book. Interestingly, Eric Maria remarked, Uh, got some grief for this and that's part of the reason I believe that he actually left Germany. Uh, Again, this book came out uh, published in 1928 in newspaper form and then 1929 in print form. But by 1933, just a few years later, uh, uh, Joseph Goebbels, uh, propaganda minister for the nascent Nazi party, would deem it unpatriotic and this book would be pulled from shelves. And from bookstores across the country. So um, this, you know, so simply giving a realistic account of the what soldiers were really going through psychologically and emotionally was enough to get this book uh, blacklisted in Nazi Germany because it didn't sing the triumphs and praises of Germany. And that's a very interesting fact. Um, there are themes which run throughout this book. And one of them, which we've already touched on, is just the lying. In other words, the men lie to each other sometimes. They uh, lie to themselves quite frequently. And when it comes to poor Kimmerish, who dies in some amount of pain, uh, our protagonist, Paul Boimer lies to Kimmerish's mother. uh, Because when he is home on leave, they're from the same small town, uh, he goes to visit her. And he's talking about her anguish and she pleads with him gently, tell me, you must tell me, I know you want to comfort me, but don't you see you torment me far more than if you told me the truth. I cannot bear the uncertainty. Tell me how it was. And even though it will be terrible, it will be far better than what I have to think if you don't. And when she's talking about it, she means the death of her son. And Boymer thinks to himself, I will never tell her. She can make mincemeat out of her first. So I say rather impatiently, he died immediately. He felt absolutely nothing at all. His face was quite calm. Of course, that's not what happened at all. He was in the hospital for many, many days. Uh, She is silent. Then she says slowly, will you swear it? Yes. So this this requirement that we lie to each other to justify uh, what really happens in wartime, I think is, again, part of this loss of innocence and uh, this coming-of-age story for these young boys. Uh, There's a a really remarkable vignette in, I believe it's in Chapter 9 of this book. And since everyone is, if you go out and buy this book, there's a lot of different versions of it out there in paperback and hardcover, or you can get it in Kindle. So I don't want to refer to any particular page numbers that uh, struck me in my my edition of it, but I'll refer to chapter numbers. And uh, in Chapter 9... There's a very powerful story where he's, he, uh, Paul Boymer is stuck in a crater. Uh, this is the midst of a, a hellish night of trench warfare fighting. And um, they're beginning to overcome the French, and they have made some forward movement during the night. But uh, as the fighting subsides a bit, uh, he finds himself alone in a trench where he is at least safe from the bullets flying overhead. And he is hunkered down there for a night. And in the middle of this evening, uh, this long, long night, as he's shivering away in a trench, uh, a, a body comes w- walking along, zombie-like almost, and stumbles into it. And at first, he doesn't quite grasp what's happening. He thinks it may have been someone who was shot, falling in there, but in, in fact, it is a um, injured French soldier. So when you get into these, you know, incursions into no man's land. Uh, either pushing forward or pulling back with the, uh, the, the lines of trench warfare as they existed. Uh, sometimes you get very up close and personal with the enemy because no man's land is the area in between the trenches where oftentimes very gruesome and even hand-to-hand and bayonet fighting occurs. So he, f- of course, freaks out as this body falls into his uh, crater. And as he once he realizes the Frenchman, he uh, attempts to kill the person, subdue them. Uh, with his uh, knife. And so the French soldier is sitting there and still alive, still gurgling, but no longer a threat to him. So he, he sort of lies back and tries to get through the evening, but in- increasingly he is disturbed by the sight of this corpse or near corpse uh, uh, sharing this small space with him. And, of course, he's part of the reason that this Frenchman will die. Perhaps he would have died anyway from his existing injuries. But nonetheless, it's a long night. And as the light starts to come out, uh, Boimer Boimer is able to visualize this soldier more clearly. Uh, He tries to talk to him. The French soldier doesn't understand German, is, of course, terrified. Uh, But he tries to uh, tell him that it'll be all right, that he's not going to hurt him anymore. And uh, he tries to get some water. He's lost his canteen, but scoops up some water from the mud, uh, which the soldier gratefully drinks up. And then he begins to unbutton his tunic so that he can uh, try to assess the degree of injury. The French soldier who uh, apparently has three very large puncture wounds in his chest or his main body cavity. And Paul Boimer, uh, showing his humanity, takes out his own uh, bandages and puts those as best he can on uh, those wounds and says, you know, that's all I can do. Now I have to simply – you know, get through the rest of the night. So that was, that was a very famous scene that was um, done to great effect in the movie to show that, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, the French soldier and the German soldier just end up huddled together uh, in, in the same spot. And when they realize or when one realizes that the other poses no threat, then they can sort of regain their footing as just human beings rather than uh, enemies. So uh, another important theme of this book is really just the youthfulness of the boys. Uh, There are a couple of scenes where the protagonist, Boymer remarks that when you see soldiers with their uniforms and their weapons and their packs and their boots and their breeches and all this stuff around them, they look bigger and older because that's just the effect of all this cumbersome gear they're carrying around. But when they get an opportunity occasionally to bathe, or to swim in a river as they're uh, finding themselves in in the French countryside and you see them naked or near naked, you realize just how young they are, how skinny their bodies are, how narrow their shoulders are, how thin their legs are because of course their diet is uh, poor at this point in the war. And um, when you see them like this, he, Paul, is reminded of just how young they are. They're boys. I mean, they're basically teenage boys. They're, they haven't yet developed that, uh, the broadest shoulders or the kind of thickness that a 30-year-old man gets. I mean, these are uh, 18, 19, 20-year-old boys. And that, that really strikes the reader. It struck me because, you know, you look around, I have a teenage son, and you imagine uh, him being thrust into that kind of situation and how he would handle it. And it's it's uh, really pretty sobering and and pretty depressing and pretty enraging in a way because, um, you know, Germany didn't do itself any favors by entering into this great war. It didn't end up uh, taking over France. Uh, and, of course, the United States didn't do itself any fa- great favors by entering into this war either, I would argue. So, um you know this idea of coming of age, when you ought to be enjoying maybe college or girls, or uh, driving around with your buddies, um, or playing sports or whatever it might be, but instead coming of age, uh, bayoneting a French soldier to death in a in a filthy uh, mud muddy trench is, um, is is really something, and and I you know that's the kind of thing that uh, can't be taken away. I mean once that. Once that changes a young person, I think it's permanent. And that's, you know, the psychology of it all, as much as the physical injury is uh, is a big part, I think, of why uh, we ought to be anti-war. There's a uh, a really neat coming-of-age uh, story about uh, sexuality in this book as well, in Chapter 7 of this book. Um, Boimer and the others have been out uh, with a couple of days off, they're in the French countryside and they come upon a river with some bridges across it. They're not allowed to cross into the other side. Uh, there are guard towers there. This, this represents some sort of line or front in the war between the uh, German-occupied France and f- French France. And so nonetheless, they strip down and uh, take a swim In this river, and lo and behold, on the other side uh, comes walking along uh, three French girls. Now, they're a little bit older than the boys. They might be 25 or so, which makes them seem very worldly and womanly uh, to these young boys. And of course, all but uh, one or two of them uh, is still a virgin at this point of the story. But nonetheless, boys are boys and they start waving at the girls and trying to speak to them in the little French they know and and vice versa. And the girls are sort of laughing and waving. and The girls wave them to come over and they say, no, we can't. We're not allowed to because of the guards on the bridge and the boys wave them to come over and they say, no, we can't. We're not allowed to, you know, because of the guards on the bridge. So it's one of those type situations in the daytime. But the girls walk uh, down a little ways down the side of the river and the boys kind of follow along and the girls point. Uh, to a house and basically let it be known that that's where they're living. So um, later that night, the, the the boys go back to camp and decide, you know, we want to go see these girls. And because it's dark, it's nighttime. We can go a little further down the river and we can just you know, strip down and cross the river and go see these girls uh, without being detected by the guards. And yeah, we're kind of breaking the rules, but you know, we we uh, we just love some female companionship. So that's what they do. And although prostitution and brothels uh, make appearances in in this book in a few different spots, and they're separate brothels, by the way, for officers, uh, which is interesting. Even when it comes to something like prostitution, there is a distinct uh, officer class versus enlisted class. But so uh, it's it's a little vague, but again, we're in chapter 7. This, these girls don't appear to be prostitutes. This does not appear to be a brothel situation. They're just country girls who saw some uh, German soldiers and waved and flirted a bit. That's that's what's happening. But nonetheless, given the privations of the time, the boys make sure to take some care packages with them, uh, which they assemble uh, at camp on base, so to speak. Uh, And they're careful to hold these above their heads when they cross the river so they don't get wet. And this is very simple. It just consists of a couple of small loaves of bread, some cigarettes, and uh, a little bit of sausage. But nonetheless, these represent luxuries uh, in the situation in which these uh, French girls, innocent French girls, not responsible for the war waging in their country, um, find themselves. So the boys show up after dark and they find the house And they're dripping wet from having crossed the river and they're half naked and the girls giggle and invite them in. And uh, what follows is uh, a very nice little situation where they have some food and one of the boys falls fast asleep because there's actually sort of soft bedding uh, in this uh, home and presumably, uh, they you know no details are provided, but the uh, the closeness uh, that Paul Boymer feels to one of the girls, and the uh, passion with which they kiss, and then sort of the uh, the feeling of of the war falling away, and all the the harshness of the war falling away, if if only for a few moments. Um, leads the reader to believe that this is perhaps when Paul Boimer is no longer a virgin. Uh, and so it's a yet another sort of coming of age episode in the book. But uh, boy, of all the circumstances under which one was to come of age in that way, you know, you wish that this could be something that was more romantic for the boys or something at home or certainly something during peacetime. But nonetheless, um, you get the sense that Remarque saw a lot of this sort of thing and wrote his story uh, very much, you know, as almost uh, historical fiction. In other words, it's, it's a fictional account, but you, you get the sense that it's very, very, very real. So, uh, also in chapter 9, uh, I want to especially bring attention to what I consider the few pages which mark the, um, the most important part of this book, the, m- the most uh, important interesting part of the book and really the most damning anti-war message in the book. And, and it's really something. I mean, for those of us listening who say, think that there's a difference between nation and state and that, in effect, wars are between governments. They're not between peoples. I think that's a very important takeaway from this book. Uh, but remark manages to make this point. Using dialogue, believable dialogue between these young men, and he does it uh, so skillfully that I wanted to uh, again read a little bit of from the, the text of the book. And this is in chapter nine. So the uh, the boys are sitting around; they're having a cigarette, and so Crop, who's one of the characters, K R O P P. What a great name, Krop. He says. To another character, Albert he says, it's queer when one thinks about it. Goes on Crop. We are here to protect our fatherland. Of course, here he means in France. So that's not really protecting. But nonetheless, we are here to protect our fatherland. And the French are over there to protect their fatherland, meaning pointing the other side of the trench. Now, who's in the right? Perhaps both, say I, without believing it. And that's Paul Boimer. Yes, well, now pursues Albert. And I see that he means to drive me into a corner. But our professors and parsons and newspapers say that we are the only ones that are right, and let's hope so. But the French professors and parsons and newspapers say that the right is on their side. Now, what about that? That I don't know, I say, but whichever way it is, there's a war all the same, and every month more countries will be coming in. So Chauden reappears. He's quite excited and again rejo- rejoins the conversation, wondering just how a war gets started Mostly by one country badly offending another, answers Albert, with a slight air of superiority. And then Chauden appears to be obtuse. A country I don't follow. A mountain in Germany cannot offend a mountain in France or a river or a wood or a field of wheat, which is pretty profound if you think about it. Countries don't go to war. Land doesn't go to war. Are you really as stupid as that or are you just pulling my leg, Grousecrop? I don't mean that at all. One people offends the others. And this is such a great line from Chowden. Then I haven't any business here at all, replies Chowden. I don't feel myself offended. <laughs> so that, that's, isn't that just excellent? He's not offended on behalf of his country or any collective. Well, let me tell you, says Albert sourly, it doesn't apply to tramps like you. Then I can be going home right away, retorts Chowden, and we all laugh. Ach, man, he means the people as a whole, the state, exclaims Mueller. State, state. Chowden snaps his fingers contemptuously. Gendarmes, police, taxes, that's your state. If that's what you're talking about, no thank you. That's right, says Kat. You've said something for once, Chowden. State and home country, there's a big difference. But they go together, insists Krop. Without the state, there wouldn't be any home country. So this is all basically the kind of back and forth um, that leads you to believe that uh, Remark's goal here." in writing the book, is one to bring to our senses the reality of World War I, but also to make a point. And that, that kind of di- dialogue, I think, is just uh, incredibly brilliant. And it makes such profound points um, in almost lighthearted or very readable ways. So it's uh, a great book, a, a readable book, uh, just a couple hundred pages, and a compelling novel. I mean, if you're interested... In World War I, generally, if you're interested in war memoirs, uh, things like Quartered Safe out here by George MacDonald Fraser, the author of the Flashman series, Um, if you like that sort of thing, you'll like this book. And I just want to finish um, before we wrap this up, and I don't want to give away too much of what happens in the book. I just want to give you a teaser of it, recommend it as an anti-war book and really as a book that I think every good liberty-minded person needs to have read and have in their arsenal. But uh, the final theme this book imparts with which I'll leave you is just futility. I mean, things are so futile. Uh, When he goes home, for example, on leave, he tries to talk to his parents. He finds out his mom is very sick, but she didn't want to tell him because he's, you know, he'd be away at, at the war and he'd be worried about her. So she doesn't tell him in letters that she's sick. Um, and he talks to his professor when he's home on leave, one of his former teachers. And he just realizes that his view of the war is one of futility. Whereas back home, these adults just don't get it. Like they don't understand... Uh, how pointless the day-to-day battles are, you know, to advance a trench 10 feet into no man's land or to to hold 10 feet against an advancing army just over this land which has been absolutely decimated. Um, You know, what's the point of that? Well, but at home, you know, this futility is not felt. And he gets into this great uh, conversation uh, with his professor, his childhood professor, uh, his headmaster at a pub, they're drinking beer and smoking cigarettes. And the professor's saying, well, you know, you should all get iron crosses. And he says, but first, you know, you have to completely roll the French up and and they must be made over from top to bottom and then to Paris. And so he thinks that the war is going swimmingly. He doesn't understand that Germany's in trouble and that Germany's losing. Uh, so there's this great disconnect between the actual day-to-day on-the-ground futility, which the average soldier experiences, and that which his family and his former headmaster back home are experiencing through, I suppose, media sources, primarily radio and newspaper back then. But the end of the book is the ultimate poignant example of utility writ large for our protagonist, Paul Boimer. Now, throughout the book, he has been losing uh, friends and comrades and fellow soldiers one by one. Uh, Some of them are killed. Some of them are horribly wounded and sent home. Uh, But nonetheless, he survives and manages to uh, get through the war and uh, he is injured. And the last couple of chapters uh, discuss his rehabilitation in a hospital and even time at home. So he sees more damage and carnage in the hospital. But nonetheless, uh, he's okay and ultimately is sent back to the front. So even though all of his comrades have gone... He is a survivor and we almost expect at the end of the book, not if you haven't seen the movie anyway, you expect um, to hear his sort of uh, flatness, you know, his inability to ever go back home. I mean, he can literally go home. But he, can't, he can never figuratively go home because he's changed so much as a result of this war. That was a common theme in They Shall Not Grow Old. And to, to the extent Mises did write about his own experiences as an artillery officer in the Great War, uh, he mentions that as well. Just this sense of dislocation. So uh, having uh, survived his wounds and survived his convalescence, Paul Boimer heads back to the front for one more go. And the book ends with this. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to uh, tell you how uh, the movie ends because I don't want to be a spoiler. They take a little artistic license at the end of the movie to make it just, you know, a little more Hollywood, I suppose. But the book ends as such with just another report uh, from the radio command. It says, he, he fell. In October 1918, on a day that was so quiet and still on the whole front that the Army report confined itself to a single sentence, all quiet on the Western Front. So he's presumably shot by a sniper and killed instantly. And all quiet on the Western Front is the English title, of course, but in the original German It is investinicht neues, which basically means nothing new in the West. So there's nothing to report. That is the Army Command intelligence report for the day. The death of our protagonist, Paul Boimer, is just such an insignificant blip. And even though we've been in his head for several hundred pages, and his story, and his family, and his comrades, uh, in the scheme of things, he is nothing. He's just another dead soldier who is snuffed out in an instant, almost like a candle. And the meaninglessness of this, uh, you know, what, why did he die for what did he die, uh, is not uh, fully felt uh, let's just say by the army command. It will be felt by his family back home and it will be felt by the reader who has come to like uh, young Mr. Boimer uh, by, you know, by reading his account. But nonetheless, in the great scheme of things, he will just be another statistic. And it's just a, a fantastic way to end the book. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, all quiet on the western front. The first and maybe only, I'm not sure, uh, novel which we will consider here on the Human Action Podcast, which, of course, is a podcast dedicated to books. So I really encourage you to go out and read this. Uh, Find the film online, the 1979 CBS American version. Uh, I I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll find uh, that it's well worth your time. And honestly, as we are moving into a new period in the West, I would call it post-liberalism. Uh, Liberalism has been dying really since this war, since the Great War, and uh, now it has failed to hold. And the question facing the West now, uh, along with what replaces God, is what replaces liberalism. And there are an awful lot of people on both the left and right uh, who have their own versions of illiberalism. Uh, And, uh, of course, the question becomes, will it take another conflagration like the Great War? What's ahead for us? Uh, Let's hope it's not a civil war or something worse. But there's no greater cautionary tale than All Quiet on the Western Front to to create or at least stir any of those anti-war feelings you might have within you. And I, I recommend the book to you and hope you will recommend it to others. So let me know. Find me. Follow me on Twitter at Jeff Deist. And uh, we'll include some show notes and some links. Uh, You can let me know uh, if you've gone out and got the book or enjoyed the book on your end as a result of this show. So, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. All quiet on the Western front. To date, anyway, the only novel we have ever considered here on this book's podcast known as the Human Action Podcast. I really recommend it. I think it is a book uh, which is going to stir or certainly strengthen, solidify any war anti-war feelings you have within you, uh, recommend it to others. I think you, it'll have the same effect on them. And really, uh, we're at a turning point, I think, in the West, just like they were during the Great War. And that is that liberalism hasn't held. It feels like we're entering a new illiberal age. We don't quite know what is going to replace God in the West. We don't know what quite is what what is going to replace social democracy in the West. But let's hope uh, it's not something worse. Let's hope it's not a civil war or something along those lines. And so that's why uh, I thought it was a good time to revisit this book, uh, to recommend it, and hope that all of you are reading and following along with our show each week. So all that said, we appreciate you listening and have a great weekend. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.